Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey there, welcome back to a new episode of Yolitics. Jason Whiteley here with you as we start the week out. You know, before we get going with this episode, though, quick shout out to my friend and colleague Teresa Woodard for hosting last week while Wheeler and I were out of town. Um, obviously, I came back, have no idea where Wheeler is, but in case you did not know, we both just had birthdays. They were four days apart, and these were kind of milestone birthdays for us. So uh, who knows where Wheeler went? But I'm told he returns next week, so I shall ask when he gets back. But we are heading into a hot week, and this episode is going to be all about the Texas power grid and whether our AC is going to stay on this summer as we start these triple-digit temperatures, which we've already had uh, across a large part of the state. So in case you don't know yet, an organization called ERCOT, it runs the Texas Power Grid. ERCOT is an acronym for the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. I don't have to tell you, confidence in the Texas Power Grid has been shaky at best. A lot of people have other words for it. But remember those mass outages in February 2021? That's when ERCOT really had some major problems. A few weeks ago, more concerns that the amount of demand of electricity that we were using might not match the supply of what exists out there. Here's the problem, though. It's only June right now, mid-June. Lots of politics involved here. We all know that. Governor Abbott running for re-election. He cannot afford another big outage here as we close in on the, on the November election. Abbott's Democratic challenger is Beto O'Rourke. He has made electricity, reliability, a central tenant of his campaign. And state lawmakers say they have a lot more work to do when they return to Austin in January for the next legislative session. But let's push politics aside for just a moment and try to figure out what the heck is going on now. Did we not fix anything after that deadly freeze a year and a half ago? Our first guest is Allison Silverstein. She's a strategist. She's a researcher. Uh, she does electric system reliability, resilience, market design, transmission, energy efficiency, and more. She's independent, but she has worked for the Department of Energy. She has advised different states across the country, utility companies, transmission companies. And we have her on the line for this episode because I really like the way she explains things. Hey, Allison, how are you? Welcome to the program. Thanks. Nice to meet you all. Nice to see you, too. Looking at the forecast this coming week, Dallas has triple-digit temperatures every day of the week. Austin has triple-digit temperatures every day of the week. San Antonio, the same thing. I don't know why the coast is cooler, uh, but it's going to be another scorcher over the next four or five days here. H how concerned should I be about the Texas grid failing and my air conditioner going off? I don't think you need to be concerned this week or next week about the Texas grid failing and the air conditioning going off because it's only June. That's both the bad news and the good news. Mm -hmm. Because it's only June, that is good news because most of our power plants have been through maintenance and because and 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 wind and solar have both been performing very well in the last week or two of heat waves, we have been seeing wind and solar cranking out almost 25 to 30% of all Texas generation needed to meet peak demand every afternoon and evening, which is unprecedented levels of production. So, so that's June. Yeah. The bad news is um, 
if it stays hot this summer, as is projected, and I've seen projections that we're going to have many, many, many unprecedented numbers of high temperature days this summer because of the combination of drought and La Nina or El Nino or one of those, I forget which. Um, and, and it's going to cover most of Texas in extraordinarily hot weather. We used to, we still count 100 degree days as being a big deal. We could have 90 or more of those, if I recall the numbers correctly. And now we're starting to talk about 105 degree days, which is even more terrifying. And, and so what happens is by the time we get to August, which is traditionally when Texas is hottest, um, all those power plants that are just fully maintained and raring to go and performing well, well, not entirely well for the last couple of weeks, we've had a number of natural gas and coal plants going down, higher numbers than ERCOT expected. But um, by August, a lot of those plants are going to be pretty worn out and they won't have had a chance to cool down and it'll be harder for them to be getting maintenance. So we could be seeing much higher power plant outages come August than we've seen this engine. I don't think people realize the, the power plant, just like your car or anything else, it, it can't run 24-7. These things have to go down for repairs to cool off, whatever it may be. Um, but but just you know, picking apart your words there, so it sounds like things will be fine now, but are, are you concerned to, you know, come August or September that, that there might be a grid reliability issue that, you know, there could be outages somewhere? I I am very concerned. I don't want to say, yes, this is going to happen, but I think we should all be paying close attention to the performance of the grid. One of the things that could keep this from happening is another bad news, good news story. The good news is that um, electric prices are high and it means people are using a lot less electricity. They're trying to be more thoughtful about when they leave lights on when they turn the air conditioner thermostat down. The bad news is people are making a lot of choices that could endanger their lives and their health mm. as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And we know that heat exhaustion is and, and heat of all the weather phenomena, high heat levels and heat waves kill the most Americans every year. And so we will have 30 million Texans in the path of extraordinary heat for the next three or four months. And I am fearful that high electric prices, while they reduce, cause people to use less electricity, could put those same people who are using less electricity at, at, at great personal risk. Allison, I have the ERCOT app on my phone, and I don't know if people know that it's out there, but it's a, it's a simple little app. You can download uh, ERCOT, E-R-C-O-T, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which operates the Texas grid. And it, it's I have it on there just as a journalist because I like to see how much supply there is versus demand of electricity. And and the margin has always been you know pretty decent over the past few weeks. And, and I, I started calling around to some contacts. And I heard from uh, friends at one energy company, large energy producer, electric pr provider and uh, producer rather. And they say that, listen, ERCOT has asked us to put essentially everything online, everything we can. Um, so we essentially flood the market with electricity. Now, that's good for you know you and I, like you said, that you're not concerned about things happening now. But but this person from the electric producer was saying, but the problem is for us, we're not making any money on this because we're producing electricity. 
that no one is buying. So is this a political thing? Governor Abbott up for re-election saying, hey, I want everything online. We can't afford to have another failure here for a variety of reasons. Or is, is there something else going on with ERCOT running this grid so conservatively? I hard to answer that one. I won't. It is it is both a political thing and a grid sensible grid caution thing, but it's going to have a downside. The downside is if you are putting your entire team on the field in the first quarter, they're all going to be worn out by the fourth quarter when we need them the most. And you could have used up some of your best assets by then. So we are running a great risk and spending a lot of dollars on conservative grid operation today. And that will be, you know, using up the gas in the tank of the the electricity fleet on the, the, the gas and coal side and the nuclear plants. The great benefit that we have, I have to say it again, is the amount of wind and solar that we have in Texas. It is at unprecedentedly high levels. It is producing at much lower cost. So it is bringing down the average cost of electricity that's hitting our wallets every month um, by probably 20 to 25 percent higher if we were getting all of this electricity from natural gas and coal and, you know, the old fashioned assets. If with all the wind and solar that we are able to get today, electricity prices in our cut are much, much lower, and we should all be super grateful. And just to sort this out for our listeners here, too, um, the, the majority, correct me if I'm wrong here, you're, you're the expert on this, Allison, but the majority of, of electric uh, generators in this state run on uh, natural gas. There are some still on coal and there is a growing number of them which are renewable, which are the solar panels in West Texas, the turbines, et cetera. Um, my question though, has has ERCOT to your recollection ever run the grid this conservative before? And if so, what was the outcome then? No, I don't believe ERCOT has ever run the grid this conservatively and it is significantly increasing costs for us all. Um, so, and, and it is trying to, it is being super conservative because of the magnitude of the failure of the grid last February in Winter Storm Uri. And they went through and said, what is every possible thing we can do to prevent that kind of disaster? That level of conservative operation makes sense when you only have to do it for a week or two. Mm. They're, they have already done it for... This is June. They've already done it for five months and they're fixing to do it for another four months. And I don't know if the generation fleet can last that long. It's like, you know, you take an old car and you drive it too fast on the highway. It may not get you where you want to go in time. From an economic standpoint, I was mentioning that that uh, friends of mine who work for that electric generator in, in the state, I can't imagine that that these companies, which have to make money, obviously, to survive, that these companies are fine with ERCOT running things so conservatively for a, you know, a few weeks, I can understand. But are these companies, I wonder, putting pressure on the state to, to figure out a plan? There is already a lot of pressure on the state to figure out a plan. The Public Utility Commission and the legislature have been working on these issues. At least the legislature ordered the PUC and ERCOT to be working very hard on these issues as of the end of the last session last year. But 
All of these issues are unresolved still beyond the let's do conservative operation and let's change the pricing structure for real-time electricity deliveries. And the effect, we are getting a, a double whammy on costs of electricity in the state today because um, of first the very high price of natural gas, which has at least doubled over the past year. And so a lot of the electricity prices that we see in ERCOT are set by the price of natural gas fire generation. And then second, the conservative operations is increasing the amount that we are charged for electricity because of the actions that ERCOT is taking to keep all these power plants on. So we are paying more to um, pay small prices to all of these generators to keep their power plants on standby. We are paying more for what's called transmission congestion costs which is the costs of moving around electricity to make sure that everybody can get it through or, or past what are called bottlenecks in the transmission system. So the costs are really high today. And, and frankly, the conservative operations of ERCOT are causing part of that price rise for all of us. Has your bill gone up, Allison? I live in the city of Boston, and I am, know that the price has gone up. I'm on a flat rate. I'm not allowed to shop for electricity because I live in Austin and, and I'm served only by Austin. But we last summer made the decision and the very large investment to invest in photovoltaics and batteries so that we could help to take our load off the grid and protect ourselves and our neighbors if there is another blackout. Do you have a room for rent, Allison, in case things get too bad? Here? No, but I'll give you my phone number and you can come <laughs> Hey, what, you know, everyone's talked about this since the February 2021, uh, uh, you know, outages across the state. But at this point, with ERCOT operating the grid so conservatively, with the legislature leaving a lot of loose ends not tied off, what, what needs to happen? What, what does the state need to do to rectify this? Because as you pointed out, we can't go on forever living like this. Well, th- there's a there's a couple things Over the very short term, there's almost nothing we can do except what voluntary conservation. That's keep pulling up your window shades to keep your house cool, Um, turning on your fan, don't use too much water, don't use your electric, don't use your thermostat, don't set your thermostat to 70 or 74, set it to 76 and turn a fan on. And those are the kind of things that will help us over the short term get through this summer and keep the lights on. We cannot build our way out of this quickly, which has always been the Texas solution. Oh, we'll just put up more transmission lines. We'll just build more power plants. The Texas population has grown so very quickly and our economic situation has boomed over the last two decades, last decade in particular. So we can't catch up, we are in a hole. In term, and, and it's going to take a number of years, probably five to 10, before we can get all the generation and transmission that we need to fix the balance of supply and demand. The problem that we need to do, the thing that we need to do in the short term to get us through the next few years is to do what we should have started 20 years ago, which is a lot more energy efficiency which means more efficient air conditioners, which means um, just all kinds of things, better housing insulation, better weatherization of homes, more use of LEDs, so that we are using electricity, less electricity, not just 
during the peak hours in the hottest, you know, five, six, seven p.m. on a summer day. But around the clock, we can be saving money and saving electricity. And if the nine, if the ten million homes in Texas were all saving a little bit more electricity, we wouldn't be facing the level of risk on the supply side if one more power plant goes down or if one transmission line get gets crunched in a hurricane. Is there already work underway to to build more power generation in this state, whether it's you know renewables or whether it's coal powered uh, plants? There are. Um, I think you will never see a new coal plant in Texas, and um, there are certainly none in the Texas Generation Q, which is all of the, the giant list of power plants that have applied at ERCOT to be added onto the grid. And that's called the interconnection queue. We have, um, gosh, I think over 100,000 megawatts of generation in that. The bulk of that generation is wind and storage and more and more batteries. And batteries are gonna be phenomenally valuable at helping to shift wind and storage from the time that it is produced to the times that we need it most. And storage is also really valuable at helping the grid operators to deal with very fast shifts in what generation is available when and where. So, so storage is, ter- is real valuable. And, and so there's a lot of wind and storage in the queue and just a couple thousand megawatts of natural gas fire generation. And I don't know how soon that could come online. But most of the stuff that's in the queue is in the queue because it can't get any new transmission yet. And, and will that stuff be online, you think, over the next decade in time? Um, we're going to need it well before a decade from now. But a lot of everything that's coming on today is wind and solar and battery. And the great thing about batteries in particular is you can shoehorn them into much smaller spaces. They don't take up as much space on the line, on the transmission lines, and they add, uh, they punch above their weight in terms of adding value and reliability for the grid as a whole. And just a quick question, a side note on batteries here, too. I think I read that we have maybe 1,100, 1,500 megawatts of battery storage right now in the state. And to me, that doesn't sound like a lot, but I was reading that this is only meant to be kind of a bridge to get us through a jam if if we have one. Is that right? I don't think batteries are just a bridge. Batteries and storage are, some people call batteries and storage the holy grail of the power system. Because the the problem with with the power system is you always need supply and demand to balance. And and traditionally, we have managed the power system so that demand customers, that's us, demand, do what it is we do and the power plants chase us. So you always have to have enough supply to get way above where the customers might go in terms of demand. The That gets harder with wind and solar generation because the sun is variable, clouds come over. Actually, the sun is not totally variable. We're pretty sure we know when it's going to set and when it's going to rise. So, But within that, if you get a cloud or you get bad weather of some kind, you will lose some of your solar production. Wind varies, although in terms of how hard the wind is blowing in different parts of the state, although when you average out Gulf Coast wind and West Texas wind, it's extraordinarily productive and stable. So the benefit of having storage is it can take that really 
cheap, almost free production from wind and solar and store it until we need it later, which means that it gives the grid operator way to ride through the times when the sun is behind a cloud or the wind mm. drops in West Texas. So the more wind and the more storage that we have, the more we are counteracting the variability and overcoming the variability of wind and solar. And frankly, the unreliability and unpredictability of the gas and coal-fired power plants dropping offline so much as much as they have lately because they're older and they aren't getting as much maintenance as they need. And they're more expensive uh, also, right? I mean, and they're the more expensive. Cost of natural, yeah. Well, here, here's my last question for you, Allison. When it comes to the Texas okay. grid, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night for this summer is, is, is heat, heat, heat. The fact that we, the heat's going to compromise our ability to keep power plants up. The heat is going to drive up our customers' demand. Every one of us is going to be, the hotter it gets, the harder our conditioners work. And the other problem with heat and sustained heat waves due to climate change is that so many Texans are low income and on tight incomes. And given the high cost of electricity today, people are going. A lot of people are going to be at risk. They won't be able to. They're worried about paying their electric bills, and they may not be taking care of themselves. And so, a heat wave causes people to die. And I'm worried that high prices and a heat wave. We'll put a lot of our neighbors at risk. Allison, thanks a lot for uh, joining us for this podcast episode. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again later this summer as well. But we're, we're focusing on this issue for this episode of Yalitics because other people are talking about it as well. Folks in Austin, among them, Texas State Senator Nathan Johnson. He's a Democrat from Dallas. And Senator Johnson has been out front on this on these energy reforms for a while now. He's actually on the line with us here too. Senator, I, I want to start by asking you the same question I asked Allison in the beginning there. It's going to be hot this week all across our state. So how concerned should I be that my AC is going to stay on and the grid is going to hold up? I think we will make it through the summer without rolling blackouts, but I can't promise that. I'm, I'm not concerned that we're going to have a complete failure and, and darkness for a week. Um, the grid does have capacity to meet these demands, provided everything goes well. In fact, you don't, you don't sound very confident in that. I mean, (laughs) you know, I, I, I think we're going to be okay, but, but um, you know, we had a storm where the entire state was below zero or at least below freezing. Could we have a heat wave that way? Or could we have a whole series of plants break down, drop offline? Uh, We've got a good margin, you know, and, and ERCOT's running the grid very conservatively to make sure that we don't run into these kinds of problems. It's still possible stuff breaks. And and one of the concerns we have with our energy generation fleet right now of all kinds is that they're aging. And I think we're going to make it through the summer, but no, I can't promise because we are, we are relying on uh, some older technology, some older equipment uh, in order to have those margins to meet those demands. Let's talk about those margins. So if people have the uh, ERCOT app on their phones, you can open it up and you can see the two lines on there, the supply line and the demand line, and the margin you're talking about is the space in between those two. How much electricity that we're using across the state, how much electricity there is to be used across the state. Um, You mentioned that ERCOT is running this conservatively. Is ERCOT running this conservatively because they're scared to death to get a call from the governor 
because something has happened or is ERCOT running this conservatively for, for, for other reasons? We can all make our educated guesses about the answer to that question. I, I will tell you, um, I, I know some people at ERCOT very well, and I know they don't want people to experience blackouts. And I know they're running a conservative market in order to avoid that. Do I think there's also political pressure involved? Absolutely. There's political pressure involved. It's an election year. It's an election year. Nobody wants the electorate. Well, it depends on who you are, but it, it wouldn't look good for those in power if we run out of electricity this summer. Um, but there's also sincerity to running the, the grid conservatively because we don't want the problems associated with the lights going out or, the, or more importantly, the air conditioner turning off. And before we get into the, the, the political aspects of this, let me ask you one other question. You represent a district in uh, North Texas in the Dallas area. Um, but I, I was talking to a large electric generator um, in Texas, and they were telling me because ERCOT is running this conservatively, they're asking these generators to come online. Hey, bring extra plants online that you wouldn't normally have online so we can have this backup supply of electricity in case things go south. Well, the generators, these electric companies are prov- are providing this, but they say, hey, listen, we're not making any money on this. In fact, we're, we're operating at a loss. So, uh, you know, just basic business tells me this, this can't go on for long. That's exactly right. And it is the problem with the conservative way we're running uh, the grid this summer. It keeps people's air conditioners on and it keeps people out of political trouble, but it is not sustainable. The generators can't run these plants at a loss. We've got plants that are having to run way more often than they're capable of running. They're supposed to be offline, undergoing maintenance all the time or taking a breather, reconditioning, uh, and they're having to be available and run way more than they were, uh, than we would expect them to run under normal conditions. So, Senator, you've been living energy for for a while now, and you and I have talked about this uh, offline a lot. The next legislative session begins in January. What do you expect the legislature to pursue to stabilize everything so we're not running so conservatively? Or is is that where the state wants to go? A, A lot of the work, honestly, for the legislature was done last session. I know people think we didn't do a whole lot, but we really did do a whole lot. Um, and some of what has to happen requires a level of expertise that legislators don't have that requires action over at the Public Utility Commission and at ERCOT. So what we did was create kind of a framework and a vision for how things ought to work and then kick it over to the PUC and say, OK, you all figure out how to do it now. And then ERCOT, you actually make it happen. So the PUC is looking at a whole bunch of different ways we can take our energy only market, which has produced pretty reliable, pretty cheap electricity for a long time and then catastrophically failed and is now sending us in a direction that is unsustainable. Our old market is not going to serve our needs. It's the PUC now that's redesigning the market. The legislature needs to make sure they get it right. But we have to kind of wait and see what the PUC comes up with this fall as we move towards something. I'm going to use a word here that scares a lot of people in the capital. It's capacity market. Well, well right. I want you to walk us through this. Tell us what an energy only market is. That's where we are today That's where in a capacity today. market. An energy only market, I believe, only compensates uh, for the power that has been produced. Capacity market, my understanding is, Senator, is would, would, would uh, compensate for how much you can produce, all the, the, the power plants you do have in stock. Is that right? 
Yeah, it's almost impossible to understand an energy-only market without first looking at a capacity market, because most of what we think of out there in the world in terms of if, if you manufacture shoes, no one pays you for shoes you don't produce. So as a, as a manufacturer, you try to, to guess it just right, and you produce as many as you're going to sell, right? Um, in electricity, in the energy-only market, yeah, right, of course you're only going to sell, get paid for the energy you produce. That's how we think of markets. But, but energy is different. Because if you don't get the shoe you like, you buy a different one or you wait a week to get your shoes. But if your air conditioner goes out or you don't have any heat, you could die. So we try to be a little bit more responsible as a government when we're talking about energy. And throughout the nation, throughout the world, capacity markets have um, been one of the leading answers to make sure we have enough. So what, what a regulator or an independent operator like ERCOT would do is estimate how much electricity the state is going to need or the region is going to need. And then overshoot that by a little bit and go out to all the generators and say, I guarantee you, I'm going to pay you for this much electricity and you for this much and you for this much. The generator now then knows, aha, I know I'm going to get paid for this electricity. So I'm going to make the investments I have to make in order to get there. Right. Uh, but it is it's a little bit wasteful because if if ERCOT were to buy 120 percent of the electricity they think we're going to need, they're paying for that 20 percent, whether it's there or not. And then we all pay that cost. It's inefficient. It raises the price of electricity. Now, other places say that's fine. That's the cost of reliability. And Texas said, nah, we think it's going to work just fine if we do energy only. And most of the time it does. But it doesn't so, always. So what is the cost of reliability then? Because, you know, some of these thermal plants, the plants that, that run on coal and, and natural gas, we don't want to keep polluting the atmosphere with with uh, uh, climate change going on out there. It, it's a fine line, it sounds like. It, it's very hard to get it right. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we're moving in the direction of getting something right. There are advantages to an energy only market. But they're limited and there are advantages to a capacity market, but they're limited. And, and what we're moving towards is we're going to have elements of our market where we say, OK, um, a certain amount of our electricity is going to have to come from these sources and we're going to pay you produce to produce it, whether you do it or not. So we'll have like a, a mini ancillary market within our supposedly. And I'm sorry, a. a I think I, I meant to say a capacity market, an element of capacity market within our supposedly energy only market. But the funny thing is, we've always had a capacity market here in Texas. It's just been one day long. You know, in the East Coast, they might commit to buying for three years or buying yeah. for 12 months. In Texas, we have a day ahead. Um, okay, gosh, we think we're going to need this. So we're going to pay you to produce whether you do it or not. We have it. So it's, it's a question of getting it just right. So, Senator, it sounds like a capacity market is going to cost us more. It's going to cost me more to for my electric bill each month. Is there support in Austin to to get this done? You're obviously yeah. the minority party, and you know the, the Republicans run things for now, at least. Yeah, the Republicans don't want businesses to avoid Texas for lack of certainty in our ability to generate electricity. Uh, neither Republicans nor Democrats want that. Neither Republicans nor Democrats want banks who lend to energy projects to say. Mm, not sure that's going to pay off. I mean, that's the other thing. If there's a capacity commitment, everybody can figure out how much money you're going to make or lose or what you can spend. So we have trouble with people investing. We have trouble getting lenders. And then a big business that consumes big electricity doesn't want to move here and create jobs here. There's a lot of desire to get this right. Um, electricity prices are going up no matter what we do. They, they, they're already up. They're up in shocking levels. 
And but there's various it, reasons for that, but but part of it is because we're still recovering from the damage of Storm Uri. And, and I keep thinking back because here we are, what, 22, 23 years into this deregulation experiment when deregulation was supposed to lower what we all pay for electricity. And I've seen article after article over the years showing that actually we're paying more than those regulated markets than places like Austin uh, has. Sure. We, we definitely don't have the lowest electricity prices in the country. And Texans love to point to California and say, look, they're regulating and they pay way more than we do. And then you can point to some regulated markets where they pay less than we do. Um, again, there are, there are advantages to this energy only market. It creates some different incentives. And I've seen generators, for example, do some really ingenious things that, that might be harder in a different scenario because you're kind of already promised, keep doing it the old way. Uh, and we'll pay you. So you don't have an incentive to figure out something new. And, and I like those benefits. But we have um, sacrificed reliability in the pursuit of lower costs and lower, lower, lower. And in that wild zeal for lower costs, we've put in ourselves, we have put ourselves in a very vulnerable position right now. And it's going to be expensive to dig out of it. So it wasn't that cheap after all. It, it, it sounds that way, especially when, you know, when we all pay our uh, electric bill each month. So to make sure I'm clear on that, Senator, the, the, did the legislature give the PUC, the Public Utility Commission, which, which regulates electricity, uh, did, did it give, did, did the legislature give the PUC the, the uh, authority to, to, to not merge into a capacity market, but to, but to explore that more? It, it gave the PUC additional authority and a directive that you need to you need to make sure we have enough electricity and you need to make sure we have it on demand and that it comes from stable sources um, and, and, and a broad framework for that. And yes, the power is now with the PUC to introduce um, capacity elements. I don't think they could go so far as to say, okay, from now on, we're going to run a capacity market, nor would they uh, politically. That, that wouldn't happen. But they're talking about introducing something called a load serving entity reliability obligation, an LSERO, big fancy word that means sort of a decentralized version of a capacity market. Now, in, in a standard capacity market, the, the entity, the ERCOT, the ISO, um, will decide how much we're going to buy and, and make the purchases and run it all through there. In an LSERO, the load-serving entities, i.e. your retail electric providers, are going to be required to buy a certain amount of electricity, a certain capacity for a certain level of reliability of electricity, each one of them. So there, you can buy it wherever you want. You can buy it from batteries. You can buy it from combined cycle fuel, gas generating plants. As long as we know it'll turn on a jiffy, it'll qualify. But we're going to tell you how much of it you have to have. That is a capacity market. It's just decentralized. It's not going to be the whole market, but it's going to be part of it. Here's the last thing I want to ask you about, too. Uh, federal subsidies for renewable energy. We're talking about the turbines in West Texas, uh, solar farms and things like that. Why is this that big of a deal? It, it's a big deal because for years, a, a small number of people have said that these federal subsidies are going to destroy our uh, our grid. And the case that they would make for that is as the federal government is subsidizing wind power and wind can produce power really cheaply, the generators abandon their, their plans to build more gas power plants because it's cheaper and easier to build the wind power. It's also cleaner, right? And it's cheaper for all of us. Um, the, the problem with that theory is that 
we've all, we, Texas embraced these subsidies. We built transmission lines, the CRES lines, uh, in order to welcome this industry. We've created uh, the largest wind fleet in the nation and in doing so, created more cheaper, cleaner energy than anywhere else on earth and brought a lot of businesses here. It's been a tremendous success, a tremendous boon, but it also has had the, the effects that the critics say. It has, has caused a shift in investment away from more reliable forms of generation. When the wind stops blowing, that whole fleet doesn't produce electricity. And that's a problem. The way we fix that um, is, is, I think, what the PUC is looking at right now. But for years, people said, we just need to penalize wind. We need to shut them down. We need to tax them. We need to impose penalties. No, no, that is a huge boon. Let them come in, provide incentives for people to produce energy that's more reliable, quicker. For example, a wind farm might hook up to a battery. It becomes suddenly dispatchable all the time. The wind stops blowing, they just turn on their battery. When the wind's blowing hard, they charge the battery. Or a gas-fired power plant invests in some new combined cycle, um, what do we call reciprocating engines? Cool, big words, right? Build new plants, pay them more for that electricity when we need it. You can balance this whole market out and still have all the benefits of clean, plentiful energy from the renewables that are being subsidized. But but as you pointed out too, the the uh, the oil and gas companies have, have long been opposed to this because they say, hey, we're not getting any extra money on the side from the feds to do any of our work here. Let's make it a level playing field. Yeah, that, that's not quite accurate. There <laughs> there's plenty. There there. Um, they're better disguised. There's the uh, oil and gas industry gets plenty of help from the state and federal government. Um, I, I am not against the oil and gas company. It is a strength of Texas. It really is. And, and our need for responsible production of oil and gas is not going away in the foreseeable future. And it can be done responsibly. And there are energy companies that are making great investments and in strides. It should not be fossil fuel versus renewables. Our population is growing by the tens of millions our energy consumption is growing. It's getting hotter, as you pointed out. We're going to need all of this energy. There's room for all of this to play here. We just need to make sure that the markets are structured in a way that, that is sustainable for all of us, affordable and reliable. That's why we'll be watching what happens in, uh, in January. Senator, it's always good to see you. Thanks for the time. Thanks for talking, Jason. Good to be here. All right, that's it for this episode of Yolitics. Hope you stay cool this week. If you can conserve energy, as Allison was talking about, please try to do it. I know I try to at my house, but it's always a challenge. I turn the lights off, but I'm told the lights don't really matter. It's the AC and the dryer and the washing machine and things like that that really eat up your, uh, your energy costs. Hopefully Wheeler is back next week. We'll have to ask him where he's been. Uh, until then, hope you have a good one. We'll talk to you soon.